All right. So I'm going to go through it. Really, what I'm going to go through here is a little bit more detail on the HR diagram just to try to give you, because you're going to be seeing it so much, um, the PowerPoints, the text give goes over it a little bit quicker. I really want to go over it in much more detail uh, to be able to explain it to you better. So what I'm going to do is we're going to make a big HR diagram on the board, essentially. So what is an HR diagram? Well, it's a way of plotting the temperatures of the stars versus their brightnesses. So we're going to make a graph. And on one side, we're going to plot the temperature. On the other side, we're going to plot the brightness. And we're going to see how the stars, where the stars end up on that. Are there any kind of patterns that we see in, in, this, in this diagram? So uh, scientists like to make graphs. You look for patterns. If the stars are scattered all over the graph, it doesn't tell you a whole lot. Okay? means that there's no relationship between temperature and the brightness. But if they are, if they form patterns, if they form a straight line going this way, or a straight line going this way, or a curved line somewhere, it tells you that there is a relationship, and that gets you to go looking for the physical meaning behind it. This is a really extremely important tool of stellar astronomy. As I said, we're going to see it in chapter 11, which talks about formation of stars. We're going to see it in chapter 12, which talks about the life of the stars. We'll see it in chapter 13, which talks about the end states of the stars. So you're going to see this over the next couple chapters uh, constantly. You're going to see this diagram. It tells us a lot about them. It doesn't only tell us the two things we plot. It tells us about the temperature and the luminosity, how bright they are. It can tell us something about the masses, the sizes, how big the star, how big, how massive the stars are as well. So it tells us a number of different things. We can look at how stars evolve, how they change over time. We can see how they move, how they'll actually move on this HR diagram. So as, a st as the sun ages, right now it's a main sequence star, somewhere in about the middle here. As it ages and uses up its fuel, it's going to become a red giant star. So eventually the sun will go from being here to being up in the upper right hand corner of the HR diagram. Not something we'll see in a lifetime. We can't go watch any other star and watch it change. Those, ta those changes take you know, for the sun, it's going to take five billion years before it begins to start that change. And even the change itself will take you, um, you know, 100 million years. It'll take a long time. So we're not going to be able to watch it. But when we look at billions of stars, we can get a snapshot of all these different ages. So it's sort of as, you know, if you want to, just, if you want to just study people, right? And you, but you want to study them all right now. You want to do it all today. Well, you're not going to be able to study the lifespan of a single person in a day, right? But you could look and you could get kids. And you could get babies, and you could get adults, and, and you could get the whole range to look at the different variation, similar to what we're doing with stars. We can't watch one age. We can't, we can't physically do it. There's not, no, very few stages, only one stage of stellar evolution that is fast enough for us to view. And that's if a star happens to undergo a supernova explosion. That's something that's actually measured in you know, days to weeks from the actual explosion until it's gone. That's one thing we can actually you know, physically see. All the other stages that we'll talk about in the next couple of chapters are not things that we can, we can watch. So, but we can study them on the HR diagram by looking at all these different snapshots of the stars and seeing them as very young stars, as mature stars, as very old stars, as dead stars. So we can get the whole range of it by looking at all these different snapshots of them. So let's make our HR diagram here. We're going to start with what do we plot? What do we, first thing you're doing a graph, you've got to put what you're putting on the axes. So first thing we're going to do is on the horizontal axis down here, we're going to plot the temperature.
temperature plotted backwards, plotted from right to left. So the hottest temperatures, temperature increases this way. Backwards from how you normally plot a graph, usually you put the lower numbers on the left-hand side, higher numbers on the right. In terms of temperatures, these are the hot stars here, and these are the cooler stars down here. So temperature is going backwards from very hot temperatures to very cool temperatures. But you can plot things other than that. Depending on the type of HR diagram you're making, you might see something else plotted on that. You might see the spectral classes plotted here. So O stars, B, A, F, G, K, M. If I squeeze those in there, you might see the spectral classes plotted there. You might also see what is called a color index. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. This is a way of measuring the temperatures. The color index is actually increases the opposite direction of the temperature. It still measures the temperature. All three of these are ways of measuring the temperature. So you're plotting the same thing. It's just sometimes if you're doing a theoretical model, your theoretical model is going to give you temperatures. Right? If you do, do all the calculations, you're going to come out with how hot the surface of the star is. That would be the easy number to plot. If you're doing observations, when you observe a star, I can tell you whether it's hotter or cooler, but just looking at a star doesn't tell me its temperature. I can't just look at a star and tell you that's 7,815 degrees. Right? But I can determine its spectral class. Spectral class is related to temperature in that the coolest stars are the M type, the hottest stars are the O type, and there's a temperature distribution in them. So that's one way to get temperatures of the stars. An even easier way is using what is called a color index. And it's a measurement that looks at two specific wavelengths, measures the brightness of a star in two specific wavelengths and compares those and gives you a direct measure of the temperature. So you can take this color index and that tells you the temperature. Now let me go over what the color index is a little bit here. What you do is you take the star and you measure its brightness in two filters. So you're going to have a blue filter Oh, goodness. Try again. Blue filter. And you have a V, or what's called a visual filter, which really looks at the yellow part of the spectrum. So you look at the blue light and you look at the yellow light. Now, there are many different ways to do this. Uh, this is the most common one that you use the B and the V filters, these specific uh, ones. There are other filters. You can look at the ultraviolet, you can look at the reds, you can look at the infrareds. So there's a whole bunch of them that you can look at. This is just one of the ones that you'll see most commonly used. And if you take those two magnitudes, so you measure the magnitude. How bright is the star through this blue filter? Just looking at the blue light. How bright is this star just looking at the yellow light? So we look at just blue light, we look at just yellow light, and we compare the two which we do by subtracting, and you subtract the two. And if this is a positive number, so if this is greater than zero, if it's greater than zero, that means that the B number was larger than the V number. 
So the B number, was, if it's greater than zero, B number is larger than V. That means that it's brighter in the yellow. Right? This is where it starts to throw you because the bigger number means it's fainter. So if this is greater than zero, then that means that it is that the B magnitude is larger, which means it's fainter and emitting less blue light than it is yellow light. And that's going to tell us it's a relatively cooler star. So for example, I gave you a plus 2.0, if you take these two magnitudes and subtract them, would be a very red star. Okay? Part of that, again, goes back to the magnitudes being backwards. So when you measure the B magnitude, if you get a very big number there, that means it's very faint. It's not putting out a lot of blue light. It's putting out more visual, more yellow light. When you subtract the two, subtract a big number minus a small number, you then get a positive number telling us that this is a very, very red star if it's greater than zero. If it's less than zero, then you're going to get the B magnitude is smaller. which means it is brighter, emitting more blue light. This is a smaller number emitting more blue light than yellow light. And therefore, you're going to get a negative number for this. And an example might be a very blue star might be negative a half. But the nice thing is that these are very easy to do. It's very easy to take a telescope put the filters on it and observe lots of stars. Observe their magnitudes, how bright they are through one filter. Observe their magnitudes, how bright they are in the other filter. Calculate those and get a whole bunch of temperature measurements right away. A lot easier than spectrally classifying them, going through and trying to classify each of the stars. Now, in terms of what you need to know here, you don't need to worry about going through calculations to get it. But again, I want you to know the, very, the positive ones are the red stars. The negative ones are the, are the bluer stars. So you want to know something about that. And you'll see that. And in fact, I think one of the labs I have scheduled for next week, you're actually going to plot out an HR diagram itself. So we're actually going to plot one out. And you're going to use these, these numbers just because that's normally what you would use in terms of plotting the, plotting the temperatures. So instead of plotting actual temperatures, you can plot the spectral class if you have those. Or one of the easiest ways is plotting the color index. When you do the color index, again, you go from very blue stars here, negative numbers, to very red stars here, positive numbers. So when you plot the color index, it goes in the right direction, right? Not backwards like everything else the astronomers do. Just to keep everybody fully confused, you know. Uh, seems like it sometimes, doesn't it? Not purposely. Sometimes that's just the way the things work out. But the color index actually goes from small to large numbers. All right, so that's one side of the HR diagram. On the other side, on the vertical side, we're going to plot some measure of brightness of the star, which means we can plot luminosity. How bright is the star? So luminosity will go that way, brighter stars at the top. We could also plot what we call the absolute magnitude. I mentioned magnitudes, absolute magnitude is just that intrinsic brightness. So it's the magnitude it would have, in fact, at a very specific distance. If it is about 30 light years away, if you took any object to 30 light years away and imagine how bright it would be, 
That is its absolute magnitude. You can then compare stars if you get their absolute magnitudes. They're all at the same distance away. We're not worrying that, well, this star is really bright, but it's ten times further away, and this one's five times further away than this real close one, and how do you compare them? When you have absolute magnitudes, they're all at the same distance. Now, absolute magnitudes will increase because their magnitudes are going to increase as you go down. Brighter stars are still at the top, right? Brighter stars, small, brighter stars, small magnitudes, very small negative numbers here, the bigger numbers as you go down. So when you plot magnitudes, it's going to be in the backwards direction. Now the other thing that you can plot there, sometimes in special cases, sometimes you can plot the apparent magnitude. Not always. Remember, apparent magnitude is how bright something appears to be. So you're not taking the distance into account. And if you don't do that properly, then you're going to get points, the stars that are scattered all over. But there are some stars that we know that are all at the same distance. If we find a cluster of stars, group of stars, they're all at the same distance from us. Approximately. Yeah, some are a little bit further away and some are a little bit closer. But if we're making a trip from here to Los Angeles, does it matter when you're getting ready to leave where you're going in Los Angeles? Do you consider that it's two kilometers further along or two miles further along? At this point, it makes no difference, right? You've got how many thousands to travel, big deal, about a few kilometers in there. It's a very small fraction of it. So no matter where you're talking about in Los Angeles, it's the same distance away from us here. Now when you get there, it's a big difference, right? If you get there right outside the city, then it's a big difference as to whether you're on this corner of the city or that corner of the city. It makes a big difference. Same thing with the star cluster. If you imagine a star cluster from here, a star cluster could be you know, thousands of light years away tens of thousands of light years away, and if the stars within it vary by a couple light years, well, if you're traveling 10,000 light years, what's another one or two? You know, big deal. It doesn't really matter. So they're all essentially at the same distance from us. So when you have something like that, you can actually use apparent magnitudes, which is really nice because then you don't have to worry about getting absolute magnitudes. You don't, this is one that requires determining the distance. So these, if you're looking at star clusters, you don't even need to determine the distances and you can actually plot an HR diagram. All right, so here's a couple HR diagrams. I think we looked at a couple of these last time. Uh, one on the left shows a whole bunch of uh, stars there. Main sequence covering most of them. My pointer here. Main sequence here where most of the stars fall. Sun's right there in the middle. And then we go up towards the very hottest stars here, very bright, very hot stars as we're moving towards this corner. Again, these are very hot stars the further you go over this way. Very bright stars the further you go up this way. And these show a couple different ways you can plot this. As I said, this is luminosity plotted this way. So how bright is it compared to the sun? There's the sun at one luminosity. The sun is our reference. So everything is relative to the sun. So the sun is one mass unit. The sun is one luminosity unit. And then we can tell that there are some stars up here that are 10,000 times brighter than the sun. If I put one of those at the center of the solar system, it gets awful bright real quick. 10,000 times brighter than what we get right now. You've got some stars down here that are 1 10,000th the brightness of the sun. Gets faint and cool real quick if you put one of those at the center of our solar system. So a very big range in stars that we see. But we see the main sequence and we see a red giant region primarily. And if we look at it a little bit more here, here we've plotted, as I mentioned, the color index actually used in this graph. So 
from very hot stars, very small numbers in the color index, to very big stars. And we plotted the absolute magnitudes. So from plus 15, a very faint star, to a minus 5, a very bright star by comparison. On this scale, our sun is about a plus 5 or so. So at about uh, 30 light years, the sun would just barely be visible in the night sky. Not a very bright star by comparison to some of the others that we see. So we end up with, let's see, let's do our main sequence here. Main sequence runs from upper left down to lower right. Our sun is right in the middle there someplace. Uh, right about there is the sun on the main sequence. And it's been there for about 5 billion years. We'll remain there for about 5 billion more. Now I'm trying to remember how I did this. Um, we can also learn things about the mass of the, of the stars. So the more massive stars are where on the diagram. You can figure out where they are. They go to, tend to go up the main sequence, up to the upper left. We can learn about the size. And if you see those little dotted line, dashed lines going through, this shows where stars that are one-tenth the size diameter of the sun would fall. A lot of the stars on the main sequence are really pretty close to the size of the sun, a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller than the sun, but relatively close. When you get up here, you get stars that are 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times the size of the sun. So you're actually going to see um, up here you'd have red giants, red giant stars. You'll have super giant stars way up at the top. And in fact, as you go up towards that upper right hand corner, you end up with the largest stars are way up in this corner. Very, very bright, extremely bright, but the largest stars are up in that upper corner. And then on the other side, down below, you have another uh, sequence of stars down here that runs below the main sequence, much fainter, and these are the white dwarf stars. So, very uh, typically relatively hot stars. A lot of them are relatively hot, high temperatures, but extremely faint. If they're extremely hot, but extremely faint, that means they're relatively tiny stars, so very small stars. So these are the white dwarfs. These are things that are about the size of the Earth. Take the mass of the sun, compress it down to the size of the Earth, and this is the state the sun will reach at the end of its life. So these are essentially the stages that the sun will go through. The sun, here on the main sequence, it'll become a red giant. It'll move its way up there after it uses up its fuel in about 5 billion years. Uh, come close to a supergiant, get up way up into this section. At some point, the sun will actually engulf Mercury, Venus, and the Earth. So there will come a time in five plus billion years when the Earth is physically gone. It's just incorporated into the sun, burned up by the sun. Because the sun will expand out to that, to that level. Again, nothing to worry about. You've got five billion years. So unless, unless you're expecting a really, really long lifespan, maybe five billion years, you know, then you don't have to really worry about that. And then it will work its way down. Eventually, it'll shed off its uh, core, become a planetary nebula. It'll shed off its uh, halo, I should say, the atmosphere. And it will end up down here as a white dwarf. A white dwarf has no energy source and is slowly cooling off. 
So that's sort of a quick summary of chapter. I just did a quick summary of chapter 12 for you there. That's about everything we'll cover in chapter 12, but in a little bit more detail. But we will keep coming back to this diagram. That's why I wanted to have it up for you here. Now, if we look at star clusters, we have, uh, we can use the apparent magnitude. I've already mentioned that. We can use the apparent magnitude because they're all the, all the stars are the same distance away. So, again, it's like going to another city. If the city is, you know, 3,000 kilometers away, but the city is 10 kilometers in size, well, 3,000 plus 10, 3,000 minus 10, does it really matter? If you're traveling 3,000 kilometers, what's another 10? Big deal, right? So really, comparatively, they're all at the same distance. And that allows us to actually determine the distance to the cluster. Let me leave my diagram up there, but I can erase these. So we can determine the distance to the cluster. We can look at the magnitudes. Oh, let's see. And we can determine the apparent magnitude. And we can take the absolute magnitude, capital M. So we get one magnitude, we get the second magnitude. We can make measures of both of those. And that's equal to there's several different forms of this equation, but it's essentially equal to 5 times the logarithm of the distance minus 5. So. Don't worry about, again, you're not going to see that on an exam or a quiz, but if we know the magnitudes, if we know the apparent and the absolute magnitudes, this gives us a direct way to measure the distance. So this is really how spectroscopic parallax works. We can measure this one. This one's easy to get. Let's just go count how much light is coming from that star. That's how bright it appears to be. If we can determine its spectral class, we can then get its absolute magnitude. That's the key. Once we get that one, then you just have a couple of fives here and you can, you can work around and you can actually solve this to figure out what the distance is. So it gives us a method of solving the distance, solving for the distance and finding out what that, what that is. All right. So here's a couple examples of what we see when we look at a star cluster. This is kind of what you'll do on Tuesday. I'll actually give you some stars and have you plot out 100 or so stars. Sounds like it's a lot, but once you get going on them, it really goes pretty quickly. And we'll look at a couple different types of clusters. We'll look at an open star cluster, relatively young, has lots of stars way up here on the main sequence. Really, really hot, really, really uh, stars that don't last a very long period of time. You'll see those, but you will start to get a few off into the red giant range. So even the most massive of these have already gone through their lives early on. Then we can also look at an old star cluster, a globular star cluster. Globular star cluster gets much more complicated in its HR diagram. There's all the red dwarfs, there's stars like the sun. And then you have it going up to the red giant branch here, up into the supergiants. There's another section called the horizontal branch, which we'll talk about when we get towards the uh, end of chapter 12. I'm not going to get through into that right now. But there's another section of stars where we see them here. And then finally, stars end up way down at the end on the, as the white dwarf stars. So we're essentially looking at the entire life of a star when we look at one of these diagrams. We see where, it's, where it spends most of its life, where it spends its adult life. We're not looking at its earlier life right now, which would sort of work its way from over here on the right down towards the main sequence. That would be, you know, the 
infancy to childhood, then as its adult life in here, and then as it matures and goes off, it will go into a red giant, super giant, move over to here perhaps, and then down to a white dwarf as it's used up all of its fuel. So looking at different star clusters, we can sort of see all of the, all of the stars, how they evolve all at one time. Because we're seeing things at not only the same distance, so it makes our calculations a lot easier, we don't have to take distance into account, and everything's all about the same age. You don't have any age differences. So all these stars formed at the same time, and you can go look at them. So you're looking at just the effects of the different sizes of the stars. What happens to the more massive stars? What happens to the less massive stars? There's no difference in terms of ages there. They all formed, again, at about the same time. If they all formed uh, 5 billion years ago, plus or minus a few 10 million years, 100 million years, big deal. Small percentage of the entire life of it. All right. So what can we learn? And sort of been going over this as we go. What can we learn from the HR diagram? Uh, stars move around the HR diagram, meaning that over their lives, their temperature will change and their brightness will change. So a star may start off way up here <coughs> as it's forming. And as it collapses and begins to form a star, it's going to get hotter and hotter, eventually ending up on the main sequence, stay there for most of its life. As it, as it exhausts its energy, as it exhausts its energy, it's going to start to change again. It's going to start to become a larger star and move up here. So as it exhausts it, it's going to actually become a larger star and become cooler. So its temperature is going to change. And if we could look at the sun five and a half billion years from now, it might be up over here someplace. It would actually be in the red giant phase as it's gone through its life. It's used up its hydrogen. It's expanded greatly in size. It's now a much bigger star than it was. And it has cooled off, become more red. And it has become brighter because it's gotten so much bigger. So it'll move starts over here, goes down to the main sequence, moves back up, and then eventually, after it sheds those outer layers at the very end of its life, will end up as a white dwarf. That's for almost all the stars, almost all the stars that exist. A few of the most massive ones are the type that will actually explode, and we look at those in a little bit more detail in uh, chapter 12, what happens if a star becomes unstable. A star like the sun will never do that. The sun will never become a supernova. It will go through its life and end up as a white dwarf that just slowly cools off. All right, so here's an example of what might happen in stellar evolution in the, sec in the second half of it. Formation phase would be getting to the main sequence. Stage seven, the boring stage, that's where the sun is right now. It's kind of nice that it's a boring stage. Not a lot happens. If the sun were going through a lot of changes and changing temperatures and changing you know, things, it would really throw us off. So it's a really long, it's the longest phase of stellar evolution, but it's also the most boring one because not much happens there. So we don't really discuss stage seven very much. We just kind of leave it. And then we go out to the more interesting ones. As it begins to use up its fuel, it moves up to eight and nine and 10 and zigzags up there in the, up, in the upper right-hand corner in the very hottest stars. Eventually, the star like the sun will expel a planetary nebula, will expel its outer layers out into space, as we saw in the image, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday's photo. And then what's left behind will be the white dwarf. The planetary nebula phase does not last very long. It does not take a long time for that nebula to dis dissipate, dissipate into space. You know, thousands of years, 50,000 years, relatively short time. And then eventually what will be left is simply a white dwarf star 
that just slowly cools off and it will slowly move down from 13 through 14. The white dwarf would eventually, over time, become a black dwarf. It's getting darker. So it's going to slowly lose that energy. And eventually, you know, at the, the end of the history of the universe, what's going to come out? You're going to have a lot of uh, white dwarf stars that have cooled off. The universe will be fill, filled with these types of objects as the rest of the stars have gone through their lives. All right. Let me see if this will work here. I don't know if I did this one right. Yep, just to give you some examples of what actually might happen here. If we want to look at a star, and we want to look at a star of a little less than the mass of the sun, what this is going to do is actually uh, allow, the st- allow the star to evolve, so let us watch what we normally couldn't see that takes too long, and actually look at this. And if you create a star here, you see what's happening to it. Right? 12,000 years, 15,000 years, 20,000 years. Not much is happening to that star. Its luminosity isn't changing, its temperature isn't changing, its radius isn't changing. Now that's because I'm letting it run at this very slow rate. And it's only up to 70,000 years. We've got to go many billions of years. So I'm going to click the little auto button on here and let it scale automatically. Now see that the times have changed drastically. We've all of a sudden gone from hundreds of thousands of years to billions of years. 20 billion years. And we see the luminosity has gone from less than that of the sun to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 times the luminosity of the sun. Radius has gotten much bigger. And as it works its way through its life, it has changed. Temperature didn't change a whole lot, got a little bit cooler. But the luminosity, when it gets up to be a red giant star, has gone from less than the luminosity of the sun significantly to more than 250 times the luminosity of the sun. The radius has gone from much smaller than the sun to being 20, almost 20 times the size of the sun. Now we can do this for a number of different stars. We could look at something that is, oh, let's do about twice the mass of the sun. Okay, so here's one twice. I've left it on auto, so it's actually going to move a little bit quicker. This would be a star twice as massive as the sun. Still very small, but look at the time frames. Look how fast it's doing this. We were at 20 billion years. We haven't even hit 1 billion years. We're only talking, you know, uh, 600 million years. And some of those phases go much faster. You can see how sometimes it'll change a little bit quicker. Sometimes the times will change a little bit fast, a little bit slower. Interesting as to where they end up. They end up in almost exactly the same spot. That's why I told you that when you look at the main sequence, you see a big difference in the masses. When you get into the red giant phase, all the stars kind of get mixed together. You don't see a big difference. Yeah, they're in slightly different places. This one's slightly different than this one. But not a whole lot compared to where they started out. They were way apart on the main sequence. Seven-tenths the mass of the sun, twice the mass of the sun. When they end up over here, they haven't changed. One is still twice the mass of the sun. One is still seven-tenths the mass of the sun, pretty much. But there hasn't been a very large change. There's not a big difference into where they end up. Um, This one does end up about twice as bright, 500, almost 600 times instead of about 250. Radius was, what, 19 for that one and about 27 for this one. So they're much closer now than they were originally. Now if we look at some of the more massive stars, let's go way up here to, oh, let's do 70. So do a really massive star, starts out way up there, large hot blue star. Again, look at the times. We were talking billions of years for the first one, now we're measuring things and we're only at 3 million years as this star is well moving off. We could have let that first one run for 3 million years and not seen the slightest change. The bigger stars go through their energy a lot quicker. See how it's moving further and further? It doesn't change a whole lot, 
But after less than 4 million years, that star has increased its size to over a thousand times the size of the Sun. It's increased its luminosity to almost a million and a half times the luminosity of the Sun. Big difference there. When you start out with those most massive stars, there are some different things that are going on there. And they really show you a big difference in them. Let me see if I can do one in between those, maybe. Do about 10. See how about 10 works out. 10. We'll end up in there, try to get you a few, just a few ideas. But the whole idea, they're all ending up towards that upper right-hand corner. No matter how they go there, this one's going to take a little bit longer. The one took 3 million years. Uh, we're at 19, almost 19 and a half million years now that has taken this one. So moves over, they all end up in that same general region of the red giant phase. Now if this actually went through more details, you could actually watch them through, move the red, through the red giant phase. But just trying to give you an idea of how the stars change. And really, how they move through the HR diagram is just changing temperatures, just changing luminosities. All we're doing is calculating as the star goes through its life how bright it's going to be and how hot it is on the surface. That's what we're looking at, and that gives us a big difference in terms of what we actually see, where it ends up in the HR diagram, how it moves around, is one way we can use to study that. All right, we were on, oops, that was, is that what I wanted? No, I'm going back to the beginning. Here we are. So, as we saw with that, the massive stars go a lot faster. That 70 times the mass of the sun took 3 million years to go through its entire life. We could have let that 7 tenth of a solar mass star or a star like the sun run for 3 million years and it wouldn't change in the slightest. No changes to it. So more massive stars, they've got a lot more material to them, but they go through it many times faster. Low mass stars, many of the low mass stars, much lower than the sun, way down here at the edge of the main sequence, will last longer than the life of the universe right now. So some of these stars would still exist. If they were formed near, very near the beginning of the universe, they'd still be around. A white dwarf star, these stars down here, is really what the sun will be at the end of its life. So that's eventually what we're going to see for the sun, shedding its outer layers out into space. And what's left behind is just the hot core of the star, dense and compact, no more energy source, and slowly cooling off. All right, so let me finish this up here then. Uh, there's where the white dwarfs come up. Down here towards the end, we looked at this before, the white dwarfs will end up here and then slowly cool off their temperatures. Uh, again, that's going to take uh, hundreds of billions of years for the white dwarf to cool off. There is not a white dwarf that has cooled off into a black dwarf yet in the history of the universe. There hasn't been enough time. There hasn't been enough time for it to physically cool off. Eventually, that's where all of the stars will head. Anything that forms a white dwarf, there's no more energy source. It's going to work its way down towards colder and colder temperatures. White dwarfs, extremely hot, can be as hot as many of the hottest stars that we see on the main sequence, uh, you know, tens of thousands of degrees. But they're extremely small and extremely faint. So they end up in the lowest lower left hand side of the HR diagram. So you had the largest stars up here. These down here would be the smallest stars. So size goes kind of diagonally on this diagram. They'll slowly move down. So a white dwarf doesn't just stay here, but slowly over time it will just move down this way. 
We'll never make it back up to this part of the HR diagram again. All you've got is the dead core of a star. The only thing it can do is slowly cool off and slowly work its way further and further down towards cooler and cooler temperatures. Okay. And should be just about set here. Let me see. Here's a couple of things that can be left over. Star like the sun. Well, we saw that yesterday. Uh, the ring nebula. There's the white dwarf star at the center. That's the core of the star. The outer layers around it, that was the atmosphere of the star that's been expelled out into space. Doesn't last very long, uh, 50, 60,000 years perhaps, that that nebula will actually last until either this star fades in, in brightness enough that it can no longer excite those gases and cause them to glow, and the gases will slowly expand out. The one on the right is a supernova remnant. That's actually a star that exploded. You see the difference between the two? I mean, one looks like something nice and calm happened to it. It just kind of shed these layers out or pushed them out. The other one looks like something a little more violent happened there. And there is actually a remnant down here called a neutron star that is the remnant of the object that exploded. And these are the outer layers of that star that have been expanded much more violently out into space. And again, when we come to chapter 12, we'll go through 12 and 13, we'll go through these remnants a little bit more. So, finishing up here, again, the HR diagram has all sorts of information for us. Tells us things about the sizes, about the masses of the stars. We can learn about how the stars uh, change and evolve over time. Most of the time, that star spends on the main sequence. That's why we find most of the stars on the main sequence, because they spend most of their life there. They spend 90% of their time here, and they'll spend 10 or so percent here, and the rest is whatever, you know, 9 to 10% here, and then everything else is, you know, dead stars. They're going to spend then, eventually that'll end up being the most time, but in terms of the life of a star when we can see it, it's really all main sequenced in a small percentage as the red giant. And then eventually ending up as a white dwarf. All right. Question? Questions? Make sense? Got that down? That's your quiz? That's going to be the quiz. So you can take a few minutes to look at it. I'm going to erase it, and then I give you a piece of paper and ask a bunch of questions to draw me in a main sequence, draw me in this, draw me in that. So give you a few seconds again to look at it there and remember it before I do your quiz. And then once the quiz is done, we'll work on the, we'll work on the labs for today.